In July 2001, Peter Falconio and Joanne Lees were taking a dream trip around the world. One night in the middle of remote central Australia, the couple's world was shattered and Peter has never been seen since. The question of what happened on the side of Stewart Highway has been resolved in the courts, but was it the right answer? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a heads up, I may not have an episode next week. I'm not sure yet. I'm going on a out-of-the-country trip next month, so obviously I'm missing an episode then, and I didn't want to miss one in February, but my life is a comedy of errors at the moment, and the current error is called hand, foot, and mouth disease. Somehow my 16-year-old got it, not the babies, no, not them. The 16-year-old got it, brought it home, and so far has given it to my 6-year-old. He has just started with it. We'll see what happens with the toddler. But if they can't go to school or daycare this week, I'm just not going to be able to get another episode out. So fingers crossed for healthy kids. Tonight's case was suggested by Maggie and Tracy back when I was doing Insight, and I want to thank them for this rabbit hole. I also want to thank Jess for doing the base research on this case. It's another case where my non-U.S. listeners probably know it well, at least Australia and probably those in the U.K. The rest of us were probably new to it. Something like 70% of my listenership is in the U.S., so it is a new case for many of us. The murder of Peter Falconio in 2001 became huge news in Australia for a number of reasons, but I think the throwback to the 1996 trial of Ivan Malat was a huge part of that. For those who don't know, Ivan Malat was convicted of killing seven people. They were backpackers going through Australia. Five were from other countries, two were Australian. And the murders were collectively known as the Backpacker Murders, which is pretty on the nose for a name. So when Peter Falconio, a British citizen, went missing while backpacking through Australia a few years after this, it sounded like deja vu. But of course, at that point... Ivan Malat was in prison. This case is not like those cases in the sense that Malat's victims were generally hitchhiking their way across. And Peter and his girlfriend Joanne Lees had their own camper van and likely felt relatively safe in it, certainly safer than hitchhiking. Now, to illustrate how big of a deal the Ivan Malat case was, when Joanne and Peter told their families in England about this planned trip to Australia, they brought him up. They brought up the backpacker murders and expressed some anxiety. But Peter and Joanne were fairly adventurous. They loved travel. They met at a nightclub in 1996 when they were both in their 20s. They both grew up in West Yorkshire, England. And Peter studied building construction locally, but he wanted to improve his education for more opportunities, so he went to Brighton to study for two years. 
Joanne stayed back in their hometown area for the first year he was away. She worked for a travel agency. After a year of Peter driving the four and a half hours home and back whenever he could, he asked Joanne to move in with him. She said yes and was even able to get a job transfer down to Brighton where he was going to university. Throughout their relationship, the two took short trips overseas. They took a couple of them, but they were planning and saving up for a huge trip literally around the world. They were going to go to a few countries in Asia and then to Australia for a few months. Then it would be on to New Zealand and Fiji and continuing on to the United States. They left for their trip in 2000 after having lived together for about two years. And they did their first tour of Nepal and Thailand, Malaysia, Cambodia, and I think Singapore was in there. And then they went to Sydney, Australia, arriving in January 2001. When they got to Sydney, Peter and Joanne settled into a shared apartment because they planned to stay there for about three months to earn money for the rest of their trip. Australia has a working holiday visa that allows people to live and work in Australia while they are traveling through. And there are a lot of countries that have these. Many are limited to people under the age of 30 because that's what this is designed for. They're designed for young people who are having a traveling adventure to be able to work during it. In Australia at the time, you could stay on this holiday working visa for one year, but you couldn't work for the same employer for more than six months. You had to change jobs. So you weren't exactly getting hired on for a career because there was such a limited amount of time before you would have to leave the job or get a working visa. But it did allow for entry-level work and seasonal work and benefited the economy and it benefited the travelers. Peter and Joanne both found work and Joanne loved Sydney. Peter did too, but Joanne really made friends and connections almost right away. Because of how much Joanne loved Sydney, their stay of three months stretched to five. While out with friends one night while Peter stayed home, Joanne met another traveler named Nick. Joanne later admitted to having some sort of, I don't know, some something with him. She denies it was a relationship. She does not characterize it as an affair. So maybe saying it was a fling would be the right word for it. Though she was still with Peter, and she wasn't pursuing anything with Nick after he traveled on away from Sydney, they did keep in touch. And Nick got an email address that was under a feminine name, so it wouldn't be suspicious to Peter. So there was still a little bit of something going on there, but at least enough that they didn't want Peter to know who was emailing her. This is the only real indication We have that there were cracks in Peter and Joanne's relationship while they were in Australia. All of their indications point to them being happy, enjoying traveling the country, traveling the world together. So it's definitely possible that this fling was really just a short-term 
thing that wasn't going to impact their relationship long term. Then in May 2001, Peter bought this camper van. It's a traditional VW bus. Picture that in your head. It's orange and white. And at the time, it was about 30 years old. It had relatively low mileage for a van that old, and Peter spent some time fixing it up for them to start their trip. The plan was to leave Sydney and do this big tour of Australia. Peter is 28 and Joanne is 27 at this point. They left Sydney on June 25th and headed to the capital, then on to Melbourne, and then over to Adelaide. These are all cities, but in between them is a lot like driving through the Midwest of the U.S. Not a whole lot going on. But then from Adelaide, they turned north, and they started entering the most remote areas in Australia. Very few areas in this world will compare to how remote these areas are. On July 11th, they were at Uluru, which is the famous site of the Zaria Chamberlain disappearance. Her mother, Lindy, was accused of killing her. She was an infant at the time. Lindy was actually sent to prison on these murder charges. But then Azaria's sweater was found near a dingo den, and Lindy was exonerated. It turned out that what Lindy said happened was the truth. A dingo had gone into their family's tent and taken the baby. This isn't the only time the Chamberlain case is mentioned in the same breath as the Peter Falconio disappearance, and we'll get to that. So while they were at Uluru, Peter and Joanne met another couple who were also traveling, and they all went together to Alice Springs, where they then parted ways. Alice Springs is roughly the center of Australia, and it's somewhere in the outback that you can find some creature comforts, as well as replenish supplies before you go into the even remoter areas of Australia. By the time they got to Alice Springs, Peter and Joanne had clocked at least 35 hours of just drive time over the course of not quite three weeks. When Peter and Joanne got to Alice Springs in mid-July 2001, Peter dropped the camper van off with a mechanic to check on a couple odd things that were going on. The last thing Peter and Joanne wanted was to get stranded between Alice Springs and Darwin, which was their next destination. Darwin is all the way up to the north coast. If they got stranded along that highway, which is called Stewart Highway, it would be a while before anyone showed up to help them. The mechanic told Peter that the camper would make it to Darwin without issue if he didn't push it too hard. At 10 in the morning on July 14th, Peter met with an accountant to go over a tax issue. He had underpaid his taxes while he was working in Australia for those five months because he filed them incorrectly. So while he was sorting that out, Joanne waited at the library, happy for the chance to use the internet and send some emails. After Peter was done, they met for a late breakfast, and then at 11.30, Joanne called a friend of hers back in Sydney to tell her that they were going to watch the Camel Cup, 
which is what it sounds like. It is a camel racing competition. But they were eager to get on the road afterwards because someone told them about an amazing place on the way to Darwin to watch the sunset. So after spending a few hours at the Camel Cup, they ate at the Red Rooster, which is a fast food type chicken place. And then around 4 p.m., they were driving out of Alice Springs. At sunset, which Google tells me would have been around 6 p.m. that day, Peter and Joanne pulled over and rolled a joint to smoke while they watched the sun go down. They got some gas and continued on their drive north. The gas receipt is timestamped at 6.21 p.m. Between 7.30 and 8 p.m., the couple were heading through the Barrow Creek area, which again, it's a very remote area. Barrow Creek itself has a population of 11. There are a few reports saying that the couple pulled over because they saw a car with its hazard lights on, but according to what came out in court, that's not exactly how it happened. A vehicle behind Peter and Joanne started following them very closely. It was dark, so the truck's headlights were annoying Peter, who was driving at the time. He slowed down a bit to indicate for the other car to pass him. This is a highway with one lane in either direction, but there's no oncoming traffic. So the truck could have very easily just passed them and sped along. But instead of doing that, as the truck pulled alongside them where they thought he was going to overtake them, he matched speed with them, got their attention, and motioned for them to pull over. Joanne felt uncomfortable. They were in the middle of nowhere. It was pitch black out. And she told Peter this, and she said, just keep going. The driver of the truck, he looked a bit rough. She just did not feel safe. Peter said it would be fine, and he pulled over. The other vehicle also pulled over, and it was a white four-wheel drive truck with a canvas-covered back. So when they were on the side of the road, Joanne stayed in the car, Peter got out, and he went to the back of the camper van to talk to the man, and Joanne heard something about sparks. The conversation she heard seemed perfectly friendly. Peter then went back to the cab of the van and told Joanne to start the car and rev the engine a little so that he could go back and see if there were sparks coming out of the exhaust. That's why the man had flagged them down and had them pull over. Of course, this is a 30-year-old van. Peter was already a little worried about it, and they wanted to make sure they would be okay to keep going. So Joanne slid over to the driver's side and revved the engine. As she did, she heard a loud sound behind her that sounded like the van backfiring, which it had done in the past. Before she could even turn all the way around to see what was going on, the man from the truck was at the driver's side door with a gun. He told Joanne to turn off the engine and move to the passenger side. But her hands were shaking uncontrollably, and she could not manage to turn it off. So the man reached 
through the window, turned the ignition off, pushed Joanne pretty much into the passenger side, told her to put her head down and her hands behind her back. Then he bound her hands with cable ties before pushing her out of the truck. So now Joanne is out of the truck, lying on the ground with her hands behind her back. And this man starts grabbing for her ankles to bind them as well. And Joanne at this point is fighting back hard. She is kicking at him. She is squirming, wiggling, trying to roll over. She's trying to make her foot make contact with his crotch because if she could hurt him enough that he has to double over or let go of her, she could try to get to her feet and run. And all this time, she's also yelling for Peter. It's dark and she can't see him anywhere. Of course, Peter didn't answer. During the struggle, this man managed to overpower Joanne after hitting her in the head and disorienting her for a minute. He gave up on trying to bind her ankles and ended up just pushing her towards his truck, trying to get tape over her mouth at some point. Joanne was still struggling and thrashing about, so he mostly managed to get some tape in her hair. He then grabbed a canvas sack and threw it over her head, but when he forced her into his truck, the sack slipped off. It's not entirely clear when she was in the bed of the truck, when she was in the cab of the truck. Everything's a little fuzzy there, but she did notice at some point that this man had a dog sitting in the passenger seat. Joanne is yelling at the man, asking him why he's doing this to her. She was offering him whatever he wanted if he would just let her go. Money, take the van, whatever. He told her to shut up or he would shoot her, which succeeded in getting her to stay quiet. The man then walked away from his truck for a few minutes, heading back towards the camper van. Joanne realized that screaming would change nothing because there was no one out there to hear her yelling. At this point, Joanne was in the back of the truck. All of the man's attempts to restrain her, except for her hands behind her back, had failed. Since she stopped yelling, she was able to listen. All she could hear were scraping and dragging sounds. But it occurred to her that the man was doing something. He was busy with something, and he was away from his truck. She realized this was her only chance to survive this ordeal. She was sure that this man's intentions were to rape and murder her. So she knew she had to take this window where he was distracted and do something. So she scooted herself to the edge of the truck bed, slipped to the ground, and took off running. Just like there was no one around to hear her scream, there was nowhere to run to. So Joanne just ran as far into the scrub brush field along the highway as she could reach. She fell a couple times, scraping up her knees. She then saw a big bush and she hid under it, right down in the dirt. Her hands are still bound behind her back and she laid there as still 
and silent as she could manage. When the man realized Joanne was gone, he took a flashlight and went looking for her with his dog. She could hear him walking around, but this was a vast area, and I think I've mentioned how dark it was. He couldn't find her. At some point, he went back to his truck, and Joanne thought he was driving off, but instead he turned the vehicle so that the headlights flashed across the entire area. Joanne was sure that he would find her, and he very nearly did. He walked past her a few times. If this was a full moon, she would have been done for. He would have seen her. But she stayed still enough, and he didn't. He eventually drove off. My guess is he figured another vehicle was bound to eventually drive by, and he certainly wouldn't want his vehicle to be spotted there. But Joanne was still worried he was going to come back sooner or later. So she stayed hidden. Even when another car came down the highway, she thought it might be her attacker. Eventually, Joanne felt secure enough to stand up and try to get out of the ties that still bound her hands. She managed to step through so her hands were now in front of her. The bindings turned out to be homemade handcuffs made of zip ties and electrical tape. She tried to bite through them, but only managed to pull off bits of tape. So then she tried to slip her hands out using a tube of chapstick that she had on her as a lubricant, but that failed as well. Hours later, and I'm talking four or five hours later, Joanne felt safe enough to go out to the road to wait for a passerby to flag down for help. Though, I don't know if she felt safe enough or she was just desperate enough to take the chance. This was winter. The overnight temps dropped into the mid-40s, which is around 7 degrees Celsius. It was remote. It was cold. She was desperate at this point to find Peter, so she took a chance by flagging down the first vehicle that came by. She knew this was not her attacker. As these lights came down the highway, they were huge and they were up high because this was a road train. And a road train is a heavy-duty rig that is pulling two or three trailers. I have never heard the term before and had to look up what it meant. According to Wikipedia in the U.S., we call them turnpike trains, but I've also never heard that term before, so my guess is they're just not that common here. Anyway, when the truck driver pulled over, he noticed Joanne had tape on her legs, in her hair, she was scratched up, and she had blood on her. He and his driving partner helped her out of the handcuffs, and Joanne told them that her boyfriend was missing and begged them to help her find him. So they unhitched the trailer and drove around using the headlights to look into the brush for any sign of Peter or the camper van because it was no longer on the road where they had pulled over. All they saw were two odd small piles of dirt on the side of the road, and they didn't seem that significant to them at the time. The truck drivers were open to continuing to search for Peter until Joanne mentioned the attacker had a gun. At that point, they're realizing this is serious, 
and this is dangerous, and they told Joanne they needed to immediately contact the authorities. They all got into the rig and drove back to Barrow Creek, arriving at 1.30 in the morning. Barrow Creek had a hotel-slash-roadhouse, and that's where they knew they had to go the closest to get to a phone. When they pulled up, Joanne was curled into a ball in the cab of the truck. She had to be talked into getting out of the truck. Now that she was out of immediate danger, it seems the shock of it caught up to her. It took a few hours for the first round of police to make it up to Barrel Creek. They got there about 4.30. Other officers from larger towns came in later. They took Joanne's clothes into evidence and took her witness statement. Joanne gave a basic description of the man that included that he had shaggy hair and a dark Mexican mustache. And if you're like me and don't know what a Mexican mustache is, it's a longer mustache that covers the top lip and then comes down the sides of the mouth. I don't know what this says about me, culturally speaking, but I would equate this style with Hulk Hogan. The police also went to the site where Joanne said she and Peter pulled over. They did manage to find the van about 200 meters away, but not on the road. The van was off the road in some scrub brush. A search of the van found no sign of Peter or evidence that something bad had happened there. Luminol tests did show blood in the area where Joanne said they pulled over, and some blood was found under those dirt mounds that Joanne and the truck drivers had noticed. Tests on the blood did prove it was Peter's, but like I said, the van itself was clean. Roadblocks were set up in the hopes they would stop a witness, if not the actual attacker, but this didn't lead to much useful information. Meanwhile, Joanne stayed at the Barrow Creek Hotel and was medically checked over. She had scrapes and grazes, but she was relatively uninjured, physically at least, given what had happened to her and what it seems the man's intentions were. That full witness statement that she initially gave police was lost, but she would go on to give a number of statements to them, and she wasn't 100% consistent as she retold the story, and this drew suspicion from some investigators, but others saw this as a symptom of her trauma. But Joanne did have that description of the attacker, she had a description of his dog, and she had a basic description of his vehicle. She was also able to describe the gun a little bit, but given that she was in a panic and she was entirely unfamiliar with guns, she only knew that it was a silver revolver, like you would see in a Western movie. Police made a sketch of the man, but sketches like these are best when there is some distinct feature the person had. A large nose, widespread eyes, a scar would be helpful. But instead, the picture they ended up with was somewhat vague. You may think the shaggy hair, the big mustache would stand out, but not in remote Australia. The vehicle also did not narrow things down. It was believed to be a Toyota Land Cruiser, and those are plentiful in the area. So now investigators needed to figure out who was in the area 
around the time. So they start pulling CCTV footage as far down as Alice Springs, which is three hours south of where the attack occurred. Because this is so remote, it's not like there's a camera everywhere. They're looking basically at gas station cameras. That's what they're looking at. And they're trying to find where this person may have stopped for supplies or for fuel. And they found something in Alice Springs about half past midnight on the night of the attack. So timeline-wise, drive time-wise, this fits. The attacker would have been able to be in Alice Springs in time to be on that footage. And not only did the truck match, but the man seen getting out of the truck and walking away also matched the basic description. But the initial footage shown to Joanne was not of great quality. Instead of taking the hard drive from the system, the police copied it to a VHS tape. The hard drive was very expensive to replace and would have taken nearly two weeks to get a new one. Alice Springs does not have a high-end electronics store you can just pop over to. They would have had to order it, and the police did not want to leave this station without their video surveillance for that long, so instead they made a copy. But for those of us old enough to remember back to VHS, think about that quality compared to the quality of digital video. So when they show Joanne this footage, it's not the best, and she was initially doubtful that this was the man. She said the man in the video looked a little too old. And she wasn't so sure about that truck either. But when they pushed her, asking specifically what details of the truck didn't match the one the attacker drove, she couldn't point out what was specifically different. She didn't have a good grasp of what was different about it. She just wasn't sure. A week after the attack, they brought Joanne back to where it all happened in the hopes that she would be able to walk them through it and possibly point out things she may have forgotten or details that just didn't translate well when you couldn't see the area. They did bring in Aboriginal trackers to try to find traces of Peter, of the attacker, and they couldn't. There were three of them that searched the area. All they found were some stones kicked over and Joanne's tracks. They couldn't find anything else. But this isn't necessarily telling us a story because the trackers were not brought in for a few days. Between wind, rain, and other cars flying down the highway, certain elements could have been obscured from them. The police did receive some criticism for not having brought them in right away. But without finding this evidence at the scene that there was an attacker or that there was some huge crime that happened, Joanne was also being looked at for potential involvement. She also had managed to get away physically while Peter was missing with his blood on the side of the road and possibly dead. Joanne did stay in Australia for months after Peter went missing, and at some point, In one of her interviews, she was told basically that Peter's family deserved closure and she should tell them where his body was. Obviously, Joanne got upset at this direct accusation and she denied any involvement. The police did eventually clear Joanne 
in this case, but the media and the public did not. In the early days, Joanne did not want to talk to the press, and the police weren't saying much either. So what was being published in the papers wasn't entirely accurate in those early days. Joanne did eventually talk to one reporter in a controlled environment to try to clear things up, but then Joanne went on to speak to the press more broadly. In one piece of footage, she is wearing a tank top that says Cheeky Monkey across it. We know she had limited possessions with her. She didn't pack press conference attire for this round-the-world trip. But how did no one looking at that, especially the police, not think about the optics of what her shirt saying cheeky monkey right across her chest says to the press who already suspect her? And it played about as well as you can imagine. It really looked like she was not taking it seriously. When she gave a full statement to the press, Joanne was defensive. And defensive people rarely look innocent, even when they are. We have this idea of how innocent people are supposed to act. And I try to push it aside. I try to look at it through a different lens. But I'm not going to say I don't see what Joanne's doubters saw. I just don't think my interpretation of how Joanne was acting is the end-all be-all of determining her trustworthiness. Because let's go back to the Lindy Chamberlain case. I also watched those interviews and her statements, and I also saw why people were suspicious. I definitely saw that. And Lindy Chamberlain was completely innocent. It has been proven that she didn't do anything. And my knee-jerk reaction was that she was acting guilty. So as all of this is swirling in the media, the police release photographs of Joan's injuries, possibly in an attempt to quiet some of the accusations that she was making up an attack. Then, about three weeks after the attack, the police released to the public that CCTV footage of the man and his truck at the gas station. They used that time to enhance the images before release, but a lot of people wondered if they didn't release them earlier because they didn't actually believe Joanne. Now, in this video, you can see the man as well as a very good shot of the canvas-backed truck. And this appeal for information did bring in some calls. About three dozen men were specifically named by tipsters. Three months after the attack, another search of the outback was conducted, and this time a tube of lip balm and some black tape were found together under a bush. The cap of the lip balm had been found the day after the attack, so it's odd that these pieces of evidence weren't found until three months later, even though they were in the same area. This lip balm did match what was found on the makeshift handcuffs that Joanne was bound with, which backed up her story. But it's so odd that this lip balm wasn't found at the time. It makes you question how thorough that first search was. Over this time, the police were also looking for registered owners of the truck with the same make and model in the CCTV footage. It was determined to be a late 90s Toyota Land Cruiser that had been customized. 
One person they interviewed in November 2001 was Bradley Murdoch. He lived out in Broome. Broome is on the West Coast and a solid 19-hour drive from Alice Springs. But he was a truck driver. He regularly drove between South Australia and Western Australia, which meant he went right through Alice Springs on the regular. The police who conducted the interview with Murdoch did accept his alibi. Murdoch could prove when he was back in Broome that weekend, and it was determined to be too far to have made it in the allotted time. So he couldn't have been in Alice Springs at half past midnight and gotten back to Broome at the time he could prove he was there. The police accepted him at his word. It did seem like a very tight timeline, but they did not do a drive test to prove or disprove it. For the first six months of the investigation, there were about a dozen officers assigned to the task force, and some of them did not believe Joanne's story. The inconsistencies in her retellings of the attack made them suspicious. But when Colleen Gwynn took over the investigation in February 2002, she moved most of the officers off of the task force. I get the impression she was worried that there were too many cooks in the kitchen, too many cooks who were working off different recipes, and the investigation was lacking focus because of that. She brought the team down to just a few who she thought were detail-oriented enough to be able to go back over everything to find what was missed. She also made comments in multiple interviews that she purposely moved off anyone who did not believe Joanne. Gwen believed Joanne's story. She found her credible. The inconsistencies in Joanne's story to Gwyn were not big enough to dissuade her. And Gwyn characterized Joanne's statements not as inconsistent, but as lacking in clarity. She believed that Joanne had been through a traumatic experience, and that accounts for these issues. This also means Joanne was one of the victims of this attack, not the perpetrator. And anyone who did not believe the victim had no place on Gwyn's task force. This move of taking the officers who did not believe Joanne and getting them off the task force and off the investigation has been criticized, particularly by those who don't think Joanne should have been cleared. The move would be applauded by others who believed in her innocence and felt that it was time to focus the investigation on looking for the attacker. So the task force is now going back over everything. They are looking at the entire broad suspect list, and they start narrowing it down. They need to decide who to re-interview. You can't follow every lead every day. You have to prioritize. So they're focusing on men who fit Joanne's description. They are focusing on men who were in the area and obviously drove the Toyota Land Cruiser truck. They wanted to narrow it down small enough that they could then start doing DNA testing because DNA was found at the scene. So let's talk about what was found. The most significant amount of DNA was found on the back left shoulder of Joanne's shirt. It was a spot of blood and the DNA was male. 
This was not Peter's DNA. It was not any of the responding officers. And it was not in Australia's DNA database. There was additional DNA found in the camper van, which is significant since it was on the steering wheel and the gear shift. Aside from the mechanic in Alice Springs, no one except Joanne and Peter should have had their DNA on these places in the van. While we can't date DNA, it doesn't stick around forever on places that are being touched constantly. If someone drove this camper van months before, it's unlikely that the knob of the gear shift and the steering wheel would still have their DNA on it because of how much it was touched. The DNA inside the camper van, though, was very small. It had to be sent to England for a technique called low copy number, and it's a testing method that was peer-reviewed, so it would be accepted by the court. There was also DNA on the homemade handcuffs. Most of it was Joanne's. Her attempt at getting free with the lip balm had probably wiped away other evidence. The truck driver who had handled the cuffs also had his DNA on them. And then there was a small amount on some of the tape that matched the other samples. So we have the shirt inside the camper van and on these cuffs. The DNA evidence was a straight-up relief to Joanne Lee's. Not only do they have evidence to find this attacker, this is evidence he existed. But it's still not proof of what happened to Peter. There was some of his blood found at the scene, but there was no tissue, there was no spatter anywhere else. There wasn't any on the camper van, even though Joanne said he was standing pretty much right behind it, When that loud sound happened, of course, police at this point are assuming it was a gunshot. But this lack of evidence led to a different rumor, not that Joanne did something to Peter, but that Peter was still alive, and together, the two made up the attack to fake his death. The motive would have to be insurance money, maybe to get out from under that tax bill, though I don't know that either of those things were a big enough motive to make it worth Peter never getting to see his family or friends again. And you can only imagine how hurtful that theory was in particular to his family. But now they have this DNA showing that someone else was there. The next big break in the case came in May 2002 when James Heppy was arrested on drug charges. In the hopes to lessen his own legal issues, Heppy offered what he knew about the Peter Falconio murder. He said that his drug-running partner, Bradley Murdoch, was on a drug run the weekend of the murder. When he got back to Broome from the run, he told Heppy about some trouble he got into, but he was vague about it. Then, within a month of the crime, Murdoch cut his hair, he shaved his mustache, and he had more modifications done to his truck, including taking off the canvas around the back. In Heppy's view, he was trying to alter his appearance. Heppy also said he saw Murdoch making homemade handcuffs using cable ties and tape. Now, this is bumping Murdoch up on that suspect list, and the police wanted his DNA for comparison. But they knew asking him for it would, if he was guilty, tip him off. 
Instead, they approached his older brother. The two men were estranged, and his brother agreed. They ran the DNA, and it came back that the contributor of the DNA at the scene was a close relative of Gary's. This information did get out, and Bradley Murdoch found out that the police were looking for him, and he took off. He ended up going to South Australia, where he went underground. And the reason we know he went to South Australia, he ended up getting arrested there in August 2002. Murdoch had befriended a man there and moved into his guest house. Then the man's daughter and wife accused Murdoch of raping them and holding them for 24 hours. On August 28, 2002, Murdoch was arrested for those alleged attacks as he came out of a grocery store. Now, the Guardian said he pulled a gun briefly during his arrest, but the Sydney Morning Herald said he couldn't grab his gun because his arms were full of groceries. Either way, the police took him down without incident. When they searched Murdoch's truck, which did match the truck on the CCTV footage, even if you account for the modifications, they found a lot of stuff. There were guns, there was a crossbow, there was a cattle prod, but they found those handcuffs made from cable ties. They also found cash and weed and rolls of tape. But then they found a hair tie wrapped around a gun holster, and the officer who found it took it into evidence even though it seemed like nothing. It was actually pretty significant. Joanne identified it as her hair tie, and she had been wearing it on the night of the attack. Murdoch was not immediately charged for anything in relation to Joanne's attack and Peter's disappearance because he was being charged for rape, and unlawful detention, as well as drugs and weapons charges in South Australia. The Northern Territory would not get to arrest him until that case was entirely resolved. But now that Murdoch was in custody, they were able to take his DNA, and they confirmed it was his DNA on Joanne's shirt, which then also matched what was on the zip ties and in the van. When the news hit the media, Joanne's friends told her to check online articles. Now, Joanne had been so used to being portrayed poorly that she didn't read the media's accounting of what happened very often, but this time it was about Murdoch's arrest. And Joanne said as soon as she saw his photo, she recognized him as the man who killed Peter and who attacked her even though he had attempted to somehow distort his appearance. Joanne also picked him out of a photo lineup of 12 men, but Murdoch would not stand for a physical lineup, so that was never done. To move forward with the case and have their ducks in a row for when they could arrest him, they had Peter declared dead after a coroner's hearing in December 2002. This was now a murder case. As for the South Australia charges, Murdoch pleaded not guilty, and on November 10th, 2003, he was found not guilty. The main reason seems to be that there was a delay between the alleged attacks and the reporting of them, and the defense monopolized that. This delay meant there was no forensic evidence from these alleged assaults, and it gave some doubt as to the motivations of reporting the crimes late. The defense 
pretty much accused the Crown of setting Murdoch up for an arrest, so they had an excuse to get his DNA for the Falconio murder. As soon as the verdict came in, the Northern Territory Police arrested Murdoch. And by immediately, I mean as soon as they opened the dock to let Murdoch out, the Northern Territory Police practically rushed it to take him into custody. He was then charged with murdering Peter, depriving Joanne of her personal liberty, as well as aggravated assault. So who is Bradley Murdoch? Murdoch was 42 at the time of Peter's murder and 45 at the time of his arrest. He was the youngest of three children, and both of his older brothers were over a decade older than him. People say his parents were just perfectly pleasant people, but Murdoch was a difficult child. He was big, he liked to think of himself as tough, and he was a bully. By 12, he had a pattern of getting in serious trouble, and by 15, He was into drugs and alcohol and even some gang involvement. His first arrest was on firearms charges when he was somewhere around 20 years old. He loved guns and kept them around his house and on him at pretty much all times. In 1980, he would have been 21 or 22. He caused a death by driving dangerously, but in the end, he was given a suspended sentence not spending any time in jail for that death. Murdoch eventually became a mechanic and a truck driver and never seemed to want for work because he was actually quite good at both. The mechanic thing was a skill, but the truck driver thing was because he could drive 16 plus hours at a time thanks to amphetamines. And this is how the police discredited Murdoch's alibi. They decided to drive the route from Alice Springs to Broome to see if they could make it in the time Murdoch would have had to have done on the night of the attack. They made it in plenty of time. By cutting out the assumption that Murdoch would have stopped to sleep for very long. The average Joe would not be able to drive 19 plus hours without sleep, But if you give the average Joe some speed, he's much more likely to do it. Since Murdoch was known for doing this, he was known for taking uppers to stay awake so he could drive longer, it's not a stretch to believe that if he was the attacker here, that's what he would have done to get home quickly. But back to Murdoch's background, he married in 1984. The marriage only lasted a few years. He and his wife Diane had a son together, and when the son was 18 months old, Diana packed up the baby and left. She cited domestic violence as the reason. From my understanding, Murdoch was not involved much, if at all, in his son's life. Murdoch eventually learned that he could make a lot more money as a truck driver if he stashed drugs, usually pot and speed, in the open spaces between his legal cargo. He eventually graduated to making false walls, false bottoms in his trucks, and this provided him with income and access to those drugs for his own use. He eventually made Broom his home base, but he was often gone on his long-haul trucking jobs. 
and Murdoch managed to fly under the radar until August 20th, 1995. So, Murdoch was a racist to the extreme. He had a tattoo of a black man being lynched and a KKK tattoo. He was so racist against the indigenous people of Australia that he had it tattooed on his body. So what happened in 1995 is that Murdoch was drunk and driving home. Great start to the story. A local football, a.k.a. footy, a.k.a. soccer team, won the sports ball thing, and a group of people were celebrating. It was largely a group of Aboriginal young people. The bridge Murdoch usually took to get home was blocked because of the celebrations, and he was told to go around to a different street. What you or I would do is turn around and go the other way. No big deal. Well, Murdoch went the other way home, got his gun, and went back to the celebrations. He fired into the crowd. It's a miracle he didn't hit anyone. He very nearly did, though, when he shot directly into one of the cars. Now, Murdoch blamed the blocked traffic as making him angry, but he has a scene of a murdered black man on his body. So my guess is that it's the people who were the problem for him. In a move that outraged the community, rightfully so, Murdoch was not charged with attempted murder. He said he didn't aim at anyone, but the couple sitting in the car that he shot into watched as he looked at them when he fired. But Murdoch's word was apparently taken over theirs, and he was charged with firearms offenses. He spent 15 months in prison out of his 21-month sentence. Then in the late 1990s, Murdoch met James Heppy, who would become his partner in crime and also part of his downfall. Heppy owned a marijuana grow operation, and Murdoch knew the back ways to cross Australia, where you wouldn't run into as many people or, more importantly, as many police. It was a match made in drug-running heaven until Heppy realized he could trade info about Murdoch and about the Falconio murder to save his own butt. This did not make Heppy a very reliable source since he had something to gain from testifying. In May 2004, there was a committal hearing to see if there was enough evidence to go forward to trial. This was going to be a no-body murder case. Like we talked about in the Jennifer Dulos episode, at least in the United States, the statistics don't prove that they're harder to win, they're harder to get to trial. Only the strongest cases can make it to the courtroom. There was evidence, witness evidence, of Peter still being alive that came up at this hearing. Two people in New South Wales claimed they saw Peter at a service station after he had gone missing. He was traveling with a man and a woman who were acting oddly, and they also had a dog with them. But the descriptions of the couple, the vehicle, and what exactly happened inside that service station differed between the two witnesses, so they were taken with a grain of salt. The big bombshell that came out in this hearing, as far as the media was concerned, wasn't any of the evidence about 
Bradley Murdoch or Peter Falconio. It was, of course, Joanne's affair with Nick. This is when that came out. Joanne was asked if she emailed Nick while she was in Alice Springs. She was asked specifically if this email was to make plans to meet up in Berlin. And her response was, quote, it was just a suggestion, which makes me assume there was an email, and she just objected to how it was being characterized. The truth is Joanne and Peter did change their plans somewhat on their trip. They were supposed to go to Brisbane together before they left Australia to continue on their journey. But Joanne bought a single one-way ticket to Sydney. A lot is made out of that in the sense that Joanne knew she'd be arriving back from the drive alone and or she wanted to get to Sydney to see Nick. But what also needs to be clarified is that Peter also bought a plane ticket. His was to Papua New Guinea. Peter and Joanne had decided together that he was going to go on a hiking trip with a friend in Papua New Guinea while Joanne got a little more time in Sydney with her friends. As for going to see Nick, he wasn't even in Australia at the time, so it's not like she was running off to Sydney to be with him. Other things came up at this hearing, like Joanne with the identification of the dog. The first time she was asked, she said it was a medium-sized dog that was brown and white. The next time, she identified the dog as a blue healer. Now, the defense is saying that's a little odd that her description went from very vague to naming the actual breed. Now, Joanne explained that between the two statements, she saw a dog that looked like the one the attacker had. So she asked the owner, what breed is this? She didn't change the description. She just added more specific information when she learned it. And when police showed her a picture of Murdoch's dog without telling her whose dog it was, she said the dog looked like the one she saw that night. Murdoch's dog is a Dalmatian and Blue Healer mix. The dog thing was not the only inconsistency in Joanne's story, though. But it was one that was pointed out as significant, but she honestly has a pretty benign explanation for it. In the end, it was determined that the case would go to trial, a trial that did not start until mid-October 2005, over four years since Peter was last seen. The prosecution's case was twofold. One, the forensic evidence, and two, the witness evidence. The forensic side was the DNA. The DNA that was most compelling was on Joanne's shirt because it was blood, and the experts determined it had been transferred to the shirt while the blood was still wet, and it had smudged into the shirt. Being actual blood and not a little bit of touch DNA, the DNA sample was about as good as it gets. It was Murdoch's DNA. But the DNA evidence that actually put Murdoch at the scene 100% was the iffy DNA. These were small and weak samples. They had to use specialized technology in another country to get it close enough to be an admissible match in court. In my view, Murdoch had two options here to argue the DNA. He was going to either have to argue a Stephen Avery-type accusation, claiming the DNA was planted, or he would need a Rodney Reed defense saying, yes, it's my DNA, 
but I have an explanation for it. And what Murdoch ended up doing was a little bit of both. So the Crown couldn't just lean on that DNA and settle things there. They presented the circumstantial elements of the case. The defense wanted a lot of Joanne's testimony kicked, saying that it was inconsistent or, in the case of her identification of Murdoch, it was tainted. By Joanne's own admission, she saw his picture on the internet prior to making a formal identification with the police. Joanne insists that she recognized him each and every time from the night of the attack, but the defense is saying she may just be remembering back to that picture she saw on the internet. Other things they sprung on were points in Joanne's story, like one, she was in the cab of the truck, and then she was in the back of the truck. The explanation of how she moved was that she got pulled from one side to the other, but there was no opening, there was no window, there was nothing connecting the cab of the truck with the cargo area, so this would have been impossible. Joanne said she was probably just wrong about it. She just knows where she was, but all the movements in the night with all the trauma, maybe she had some parts blurry. We have the CCTV footage. That was a big part of the Crown's case. The defense wanted it excluded. It wasn't that great of quality. Like I said before, the police didn't take the hard drive, but rather made a copy of the footage and then enhanced it. The defense is arguing that a better quality image would have given them information like the license number on the truck. But the judge ended up letting the footage in anyway after experts testified that the license plate would never have been readable, even on the original clear digital recording. And that while the Crown absolutely could have had better quality images, more quality wouldn't have given more information. The Crown brought in an expert to compare the footage with photos of Murdoch, and the expert concluded that Murdoch was the man in the footage. Then the defense had an expert come in and say he wasn't. Murdoch was a big guy, six foot five or something. The defense expert was saying the person in the video was of medium height and build. But the Crown's experts saying the opposite. And then they had an expert from Toyota come in and testify that the truck was Murdoch's truck. A handful of acquaintances and former friends of Murdoch's testified. A bunch of them testified that he owned a gun, consistent to what Joanne had described. They testified that at the time of Peter's murder, Murdoch did look like the man in the security footage, but he had since cut his hair and shaved his face. They all pointed to Murdoch's stance as the giveaway in the CCTV footage, saying it was him. Beverly Allen, who was a former girlfriend of Murdoch's, told the court that Murdoch showed her the newspaper with two of the stills from the CCTV footage, and she looked at it and thought it looked like him and his truck. But he started pointing out all the differences. He also said that he was towing a camper behind his truck when he was driving on the night of the murder. The truck couldn't have been his because there was no camper attached. In spite of this, Beverly thought the lady doth protest too much. She thought it was Murdoch in the stills. James Heppy testified he's the drug runner who sold Murdoch out. 
He said Murdoch first denied that it was him in the CCTV footage, but eventually admitted that it was him, but he was not involved in the crime. He was just in the area. Heppy went on to testify all sorts of things about Murdoch, things like he said he would hide a body in a drain if he ever needed to, and that he made the homemade cuffs like were used to bind Joanne. He didn't have any smoking gun confession or evidence, but he had a lot of stories. When Heppy left the stand, Murdoch cursed at him, and Heppy cursed back, and the judge told both of them to stop it. This isn't the only testimony Murdoch would not take quietly. He was in this glass dock where he would shake his head. He was muttering at the testimony against him, but he didn't let his muttering speak for him. He actually took the stand in his own defense. Murdoch testified that he drove from South Australia in his truck, towing a camper on July 12th. On the 14th, around 10.30 in the morning, he arrived in Alice Springs. This was about the same time Peter was meeting with the accountant and Joanne was at the library. Murdoch then stopped to eat at the Red Rooster Chicken Restaurant. He washed his truck and he did some shopping. He fueled up and headed north. Except instead of taking Stewart Highway due north, like Peter and Joanne did, he took Highway 5, which is also known as Tanami Track, and he headed in a more northwest direction towards Broome. As we know, if two people start at the same spot and one heads straight north and the other veers out at an angle, they're going to get farther and farther apart. So around 8 p.m., when Peter and Joanne pulled over after a man signaled them to do so, Murdoch, according to him, wasn't anywhere near Burrow Creek. He was near Yundamu, which, by vehicle, was over four hours from Barrow Creek. And when someone was seen on the CCTV footage in Alice Springs, Murdoch said he was already a good five or six hours away from there. So while the police are saying he was in the area, Murdoch is saying, yes, I was in the area, but I left Alice Springs around 3.30 or 4, and I was very far away from the scene when everything happened. So now we get to Murdoch's defense for the DNA. The swabs of the small amounts in the car and on the handcuffs were chalked up to either poor handling, poor storage of the samples, cross-contamination, bad technology, and possibly even a little tweaking of results. Because these samples were handled so much, and someone else's DNA was introduced to it in the lab, which we know happens, this is showing that there could have been issues with those samples. It was the blood on the back left shoulder of Joanne's shirt that was a real issue here. Now remember, Murdoch ate at the Red Rooster a few hours before Joanne and Peter did. His story is that perhaps there was a transfer there. He doesn't remember bleeding on something, but maybe he did, and then Joanne leaned up against it, something like the back of a booth. Murdoch couldn't explain exactly how this happened, but he was saying he was not guilty, he didn't do this, and he was nowhere near the scene, so this is the only place he knew that he crossed paths with Joanne that day And so that could be the only time it was transferred. Otherwise, it would have had to have been planted by the police. 
Murdoch from the stand also looked over the CCTV footage. He pointed out all the differences between him and his truck and what's on the video. On cross, though, the prosecution managed to get him to concede to several of the similarities, and Murdoch admitted his own father called him after the footage was released. He called him to tell him he was on the news. Even his father thought it was him. The prosecutor then pulled out the hair tie that was found on Murdoch's holster, the one that Joanne identified as hers. According to investigator Colleen Gwynn, Bradley recoiled when he saw it. But otherwise, Murdoch answered confidently. He looked at the jury. And though he got frustrated on cross, he never really lost his cool. Observers in the courtroom didn't feel like he really helped his case, but he also didn't necessarily hurt it either. In the Crown's closing statement, the prosecutor asked the jury to ignore the accusations that evidence was planted, ignore this testimony that Peter Falconio was seen alive after the attack. The prosecutor then went on the offensive about the lack of evidence. So remember how Peter's blood was only found on the ground at the scene and not anywhere else. Not anywhere else also includes Murdoch's truck, which the prosecution is trying to say was used to transport the body of a man who was just shot. So in their clothes, the Crown is ready to address this. And their explanation was that Peter was likely shot in the head and Murdoch wrapped his head in something to keep the blood and DNA from being left behind in the truck. Joanne's jacket was missing from the camper van. That's a possibility of something he grabbed. He may have also had tarps or blankets back there that we don't know about. So the Crown wanted the jury to dismiss the lack of evidence that Peter was dead, but the defense wanted to underline it, they wanted to bold it, they wanted to skywrite it. They wanted no body to be all the jury was hearing. Additionally, they argued, if Murdoch had this extended fight with Joanne and grabbed her and held her and she's kicking and he's got his arms around her and he is bleeding, why did only one spot get on her? Why wasn't his DNA elsewhere on her clothes? Why wasn't his blood smeared somewhere else? And if Peter was shot at the scene, where's the evidence of that? There was no spent round. There was no blood spatter. There was just this little bit of blood under these mounds. So the defense is alleging that Joanne and Peter faked his death with the help of a third person who secreted him away from Barrow Creek before Joanne flagged down the truck drivers. In the end, the jury deliberated for eight hours and did not find Murdoch's case that compelling. On December 13, 2005, Murdoch was found guilty. He was given a life sentence with a non-parole period of 28 years. He will be in his 70s before he is eligible for release. That is only if he reveals the location of Peter's body. Inspired by Bradley Murdoch, the Northern Territory implemented a no-body, no-parole law on the 15th anniversary of Peter's murder. This means that convicted murderers in no-body cases are not eligible for parole unless they make a good-faith effort to aid police in recovering the remains of their victim. Of course, you cannot 
guide the police to a body and also maintain your innocence. And Bradley Murdoch has been consistent in maintaining his innocence. Murdoch is currently the only inmate in the Northern Territory who was convicted in a no-body case, so this law currently only applies to him. No-body, no-parole laws are rough in the case of a wrongful conviction. Here in the U.S., parole on a first-degree murder conviction isn't as common as it is in other places like Canada and Australia, where the inmates are given some hope of release. So this would be a really big deal. A few Australian states have the no-body, no-parole laws, and there are pushes for it currently in Canada. But in the case of Bradley Murdoch, he has a long time to wait before he's even eligible for parole. And in November 2019, it was announced that he had cancer. He initially refused treatment for it, then he changed his mind and pursued cancer treatments. Most of the reports say the cancer is terminal. So Murdoch has little motivation to say anything now since parole's probably not going to be an option. The best chance, in my view, is to bargain for something he does want. One suggestion was to have him move to a prison closer to his family. He is so far from them right now in Darwin that visits are rare. Plus, given his racist attitude and his tattoos, Darwin cannot possibly be a comfortable prison for him, given that 80% of the prison population where he is are indigenous people. You would think that would motivate him, but as far as I can tell, it has not. Bradley Murdoch has exhausted all of his appeals, so it would take something big to get him out of prison at this point. Like I said, he maintains his innocence, and he has a lot of supporters. His blood on Joanne's shirt seems like such a huge obstacle to get over, but they point out what his defense team said. Why just that one speck if things happened the way she said? Honestly, it's hard for me to buy that they planted his blood on the shirt because they pulled it off before they even had his DNA. It's not like Stephen Avery, where he's claiming they had a vial of his blood, which we know they had, and they used that. In this case, they would have had to find some secret way to get Murdoch's blood, plant it, run the DNA, play dumb about the source of the DNA for months and months until Happy gave him up, and then they tested his brother and yada yada, it was him. I don't think that happened. It has a lot of moving parts. It definitely has more moving parts than other cases where people are accusing the police of setting them up. Another thing that is pointed out in this case as a weird inconsistency is that this has the hallmarks of a crime of opportunity. But why was Murdoch on Stewart Highway to begin with? He was headed to Broome. The prosecution says that he went from Alice Springs to Barrow Creek, attacked Peter and Joanne, and then drove back to Alice Springs, got gas, and headed off towards Broome. Why drive that far out of his way just to look for someone to attack? The only explanation for this that I find somewhat plausible is that he saw Joanne and Peter in Alice Springs and decided to follow them until he thought it was dark enough and they were far enough away from any source of help to then mount his attack. But that was four hours later, four hours after 
they left Alice Springs. That's quite the long game for someone who wasn't targeting them for personal reasons. And there are people who believe that Peter was murdered, Joanne was attacked, but Bradley Murdoch was the wrong guy. He was just not the one who did it. But if the attack happened the way Joanne said, and she just pointed out the wrong man, why isn't that man's DNA somewhere on her or anywhere? We can't play this both ways. We can't throw away Murdoch's DNA because it was only one spot on her shirt, but then think that someone else did this, leaving no DNA. That doesn't track. So the inconsistencies in Joanne's story do come up a lot still, and one is about Murdoch binding her hands behind her back and the truck drivers finding her with her hands in the front. She explained this by saying she managed to get her hands in front of her. It seems there was some police officer along the way that said that Joanne would have had to have been a contortionist to have been able to do this. But I don't know about this. These aren't just two cable ties together. There's a link between them, which makes it a little bit wider. Joanne said she danced ballet for years. She has a narrow body shape, so I don't find it that improbable or impossible that she was able to be flexible enough to get her hands in front of her. I think if it really were impossible, if she really needed to be a contortionist to do this, that would have been featured much more prominently at trial. In spite of the searches and in spite of trying to entice Murdoch into talking, Peter's remains have still not been found. In 2011, a journalist named Frank Pingalo got a tip that a truck like Murdoch's had been seen near a well about an hour after the attack. The tipster said the police did nothing when he reported it, and Pingala went out there to the well, but it was full of water. He did not have the equipment. He would have needed to search it. And I see nothing to say that the police did search this well, but they may have done so on the down low. We really don't know all of the searches they conducted. In 2017, some really disturbing information was published in the Northern Territory News. It was an anonymous letter claiming that Murdoch had help disposing of Peter's body. There was all this detail in there about dismemberment and how his remains were bagged and burned. It got pretty graphic. The anonymous letter did name the person who supposedly helped Murdoch with this. That information was withheld when the Northern Territory News published an article about it, but they did turn that name over to the police who were investigating it. But after they published all that detail about what supposedly happened to Peter's remains, his mother filed a complaint with the Australian Press Council. She said the unsubstantiated story was very distressing to her family. The APC partially found against the paper. They did clear the information with the police to believe it was credible enough to run with it, so they sided with the paper on that point. But the APC did find that the information was far too graphic to justify publishing it in the public interest. There was no overriding public interest to publish it, and they did not consider the impact on the family. Joanne wrote a book called No Turning Back, recounting what happened to her in the aftermath. 
If you are interested in reading a book that covers more of the wrongful conviction side of things, the one I see recommended the most is by true crime author Robin Bowles, and it is called Dead Center. It appears to be available pretty much everywhere. In 2017, Joanne returned to Australia. She spoke with the press. She talked about becoming an Australian citizen. And now in her 40s, she was back in Australia really to try to find Peter Falconio to bring him back to his family. She also unveiled a silver falcon sculpture at Tea Tree, which is where they had pulled over to watch the sunset. She said it was the location of their last happy memory together and the falcon represented his spirit. With the help of the local Aboriginal community, the search for Peter Falconio's remains continues. What Peter's family and what Joanne want now is to find Peter's remains and to be able to take him home and lay him to rest. Thank you for listening to Crime Lines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crime Lines Podcast, Twitter at Crime Lines Pod, and Instagram at Crime Lines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at Charlie in KC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC, Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 